Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. It's time for a completely unnecessary podcast for Valentine's Day. Oh, I feel so warm. Warm inside. I feel loved by you all for Tuesday, February 14th, 2017. I'm Pat Contry. I'm your host for this week's festivities. Well, bi-week's festivities, you know, it's twice a week. Not twice a week. I, I go nuts if it's twice a week. It's twice a month. Ian is still feeling under the weather, to put it mildly. So, it's me. It's me. I'll be your Valentine's date for the evening in my husky voice. Um, what we got to talk about in the show today? A follow-up to the GameStop Circle of Life. Yes, a song this early. What are we talking about? Hey, our digital games, is that our inevitable, inevitable future? Inevitable. Inevitable. Um, future. <laughs> uh, we'll be talking about Google and Maker Studios uh, reprimanding PewDiePie for some naughty, naughty jokes that he's done. We'll also be discussing RetroBlocks. The modular retro gaming console on the way. Castlevania Netflix show. Uh, um, some other topics that I might get to if I'm not too tired. And one Q&A. Sorry, I had to keep this one a little bit shorter. It's not going to be short. It's going to be two hours anyway. I try to keep them short. Anyway, how you all doing out there? I'm usually not a fan of Valentine's Day because historically, I've never with anyone around Valentine's Day. It's almost uh, similar to my disdain for... New Year's Eve, because New Year's Eve is always about opportunities and, like, fresh starts. And, you know, you're usually with someone you care about. And, you know, Pat's, Pat, historically now, historically, not every year, historically has never been good in terms of the relationships, particularly surrounding these two dates. Call it, I don't know, some sort of seasonal depression. Call it bad luck. But usually, Pat's not really, you know, getting too frisky and... And down with the uh, the female side of the human race around December to February. It just usually doesn't work out that way. But sometimes it does. And this year it has. So, you know, it's hard to celebrate Valentine's Day, well, in general for me, because it's a Hallmark holiday, even though I love chocolates. You know, and I know that it's mostly it's mostly for women. Don't jump all the way through a pad. It's for some men, too. I, I, come on. Come on. It's mostly for women, which is fine. Which is fine. So I've grown in my old age to understand that. And and understand that even though I might not love the holiday and might even detest it on some level, that it's not all about selfish, Pat. It's about the other person and what they like and what they want to celebrate makes them feel good. And if they feel good, maybe Pat could feel good. (laughs) Elbow, elbow, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Potential sex, sex. (laughs) Anyway, so... I put together a nice celebration for Valentine's Day. Probably in terms of grand, if you can call them, it's not a grand, I don't want to say grand Valentine's Day uh, this past Saturday, but it was a, it, it was some thought put into it. And I've only put thought really into two Valentine's Days ever. Uh, this one and one that happened about, wow, 
I want to say 2006 in New Jersey, 2000, ah, 2005. Wow. Probably still, still ending my metrosexual phase, uh, back then. Um, those were the only two times where I really put some thought into it. I won't go into, go into the horror show that was the one from like 12, 13 years ago. It might've been even 2004. Wow. That was, that was, I'll get to that in the podcast, but I'll just talk about this one because I don't, I'm not doing the podcast yet. And this would be a natural podcast topic without giving too much away. Uh, you know, I thought this out. I did a little mini cruise, a mini cruise, one of those little hour, hour and a half, uh, cruises, you know, buy a bottle of wine, could drink a little bit of champagne uh, on, on the cruise. I, uh, you know, had a little restaurant action going on. One of the nicer restaurants I, I could have, you know, we could have went to. So I got that, you know, we did the whole, uh, I did the whole chocolate thing in the, in the heart shape, did the heart shape because for some reason we need chocolates and boxes that are shaped like fake organs. I mean, I, I, I never really saw a real heart shaped box of chocolates. That'd be interesting. How about a heart shaped chocolate, but like a real heart, just take a bite out of it. Anyway, like Temple of Doom. So, you know, we did that, bought a little bit of flowers, you got the flowers, didn't do the card thing. Didn't do the card thing. Didn't get called out for it. But I, I don't like Valentine's Day cards because they're usually not funny. I like funny cards. And, you know, there's too many just, like, little frills on Valentine's Day cards. But I got away with that. Got away with that. But I also, you know, I cleaned up my place, and you know, for, for, for the special someone. So I want to make sure it was a little extra special. But then I also... You know, I wanted to make sure potentially, you know, I have a little, I have a little jacuzzi, not in my place, but in, in my little association here, you know, at the condo. Um, so I want to make sure that was filled up with water. So um, I go to the pool gate. There's a key there that I use to turn the, you know, the gate. Usually keys have locks and gates. You don't want people getting there. And so I leave it open, but like it automatically closes, but I like leave it so it doesn't, the latch doesn't shut. Okay. So. So my date likes to be way ahead of time for either any sort of date, dinner, whatever. I'm usually cool with getting there five minutes before. I usually like to time things out. Yes, I have a propensity for being late for stuff, but I've been better when I plan stuff out in advance, whether it's a baseball game, going to Comic-Con. I'm usually better with being on time, and I was on time here, but she was still flustered. She wanted to be on time. So she gets an Uber or Lyft, rushes out the door, not in a good mood, not sure why. Um, but for her, I want to make sure the spa was filled for later, or jacuzzi, whatever on call. What's the difference between a spa and a jacuzzi? I don't know. So she runs forward. I go to take the hose and turn it off in the pool area for the, to fill up the jacuzzi. The latch shuts on me right when, I, right when it closes. And I go, oh, shit. So she's at the Uber, and she's already annoyed with me. So in my brilliance, in my brilliance, I decide... Don't call her and piss her off inside the lift car right now waiting for me and have her get out, potentially miss the lift. And is, and is that her messaging me right now? Is she sucking? And not do that, but to, to actually be more romantic, I guess. I don't know. Christ, stop messaging me. You know I'm talking about this. But instead, I'm going to just hop the fence myself. It'll take only 30 seconds. It'll be easy, even though I'm dressed up fairly nicely in my mavi jeans and my nice little boots that I just bought, like, last month. I'll be able to hop this fence easily. I'm in decent shape. I do yoga, right? This should be no problem. Never mind I'm closer to 40 than 30. Never mind that. This would be no problem. Boy, was I wrong. 
And oh boy, did I almost really seriously injure myself and or die. And I do not say that part of the story with any sort of hyperbole. I was in trouble. You see, this gate, all metal, maybe only about six, a little over six feet tall, maybe six four, something like that. Vertical, uh, metal, uh, you know, rectangular shaped, I guess, spikes you can call them, uh, that extend up past the, I guess, the, the horizontal bar at the top, another, like, I want to say foot or eight inches to make sure idiots like me can't climb the fence easily. So I thought before that I'd always, or not always, I would probably be in this situation where I'd have to hop that fence. This was a situation, call it bravado, call it not want to piss it, piss off. Uh, my girl even more so, even though I don't know why she was pissed in the first place. We had had that conversation afterwards. Uh, so I try hopping this fence. So it's like I have to wedge my foot up in between the, you know, sort of the, the, the corner, get one foot up, get another foot up on another side. And there's really nowhere to put your foot. And then finally get your foot on the top. That's when I realized like these like six to eight inch sort of every four inch, uh, bars sticking out that's the problem area now if they weren't there i could easily hop that fence absolutely you put a foot up you're fine if i put a foot up on this it would like halfway impaled my foot if i put pressure on it to sort of lift up not that i'm a, a fence or gate climbing expert but i just saw where this was going but now i'm in trouble i have one and a half feet up on this i gotta get up and try this I'm already wasting time by the way and there's like huge branches from a tree right in front of me too so i gotta watch out for those that are hanging partially over my head. So I'm struggling. I use my force to, you know, get myself up there, wedge it one foot up, and now another. But now i got to realize I'm not going to be able to swing my entire leg over this fence or else I'm going to, like, really damage my leg and or genitalia section, which probably isn't the best for Valentine's Day to begin with, nor any time during the year. But i got to do this now and also do it without damaging my, my nice boots. My nice leather boots. So I figured out to like the wedge of foot up on like the corner where the gate hinges when it swings open. The the the, the rectangular shape of that I guess I don't know what you call it stake was bigger than the rest. So I could actually get a foot on there, and the one next to it was also bigger. So my only chance was to get both feet as a starting jumping point on these two posts about. Probably, you know, three to four inches across each. And to balance on there and then jump off like Spider-Man. That was my only chance. So I got on there. I don't know how I got on there. Well, with that, without seriously injuring myself, and I did injure myself. Uh, I did, like, hit my arm going down. And I made it, folks. I'm here alive. And I also scraped my leg pretty bad. Uh, and there was some blood I found later on my leg. But I managed to prop myself up somehow... In a, to a Spider-Man gargoyle crouch, and then now I'm looking down about, you know, eight feet. I'm like, well, that's not a bad distance. I've jumped probably 10 to 12 feet before as a child and, and sprayed my ankle off of a dugout at a Little League uh, park. I've done that. Eight feet ain't bad. It ain't bad if you know how to land and, you know, have your weight come with you and crouch to the ground. And that wasn't bad. What I was worried about was jumping down off of this, having my jeans get caught on another one of the smaller posts, or me hitting my head or arm and then smacking the branches in front of me, and then either I get a concussion or scrapes, or I, I was going to get damaged somehow. But I, like, timed it out. I'm, I'm thinking, 
Uh, my girl's going to be even more pissed off about being potentially late to this little mini cruise. We, and we were early, by the way. It's a whole other issue. But I said, fuck it. You only live once. YOLO! Uh, yeah, YOLO, I'm going to die. So I almost did trying to do this stunt. And I, then I, I was up, crouched up, knees almost hitting my chin. And then p- did the pounce. Missed the branches probably by three or four inches. And didn't hit the rest of the gate coming down. Scraped shit coming up. Scraped shit going down, though. Uh, my arm, my leg. Didn't damage any 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 attire, though. And I had a fine evening after that, after I told my girl, I almost killed myself for you. And according to her, I yelled at her doing that. I don't think I yelled at her. I was just had the adrenaline of almost dying. So, other than that, we had a fine time after that. We drank that bottle of champagne. We had a good Valentine's Day. So ha- enjoy this Valentine's Day, or I hope you enjoyed it after you listen to this. Don't be stupid like me, and don't try to do some, like, some sort of weird stunt, even if you're physically capable of doing it, because it could end up really, really wrong really quickly. And uh, your girl or guy may not appreciate it anyway. You know, the fact that you almost killed yourself. <laughs> you know, it's, I... Valentine's Day. I I hate it. It's just another example why. Let's return to that circle of life and lives of GameStop trying to push their used game sales and pretending they don't have any new games and stocks to them. Their customers or guests, whatever the hell they call them. So after it was revealed via the Kotaku article that the circle of life program where, you know, employees are not actively, I guess, pushed to, but based upon the numbers, encouraged to push uh, used game sales and trade-ins and pre-orders uh, versus selling new games as much as they can, because it'll throw off the ratio of, of their COL score for their store. There have been a lot of uh, GameStop employees and ex-managers, oh, excuse me, leaders coming out and saying, oh, this is absolutely correct. I mean, this is this isn't even, you know, like, this is totally true. So, which is what I thought. Of course, you're always going to have people say, well, my store doesn't do this, that my store doesn't do that. Your, you know, your, your mileage will, will vary, but overall, this is a problem. It's absolutely a problem. So we'll go back first to uh, the Kotaku, since they were the first source that broke this story, about follow-ups from their side. Then Pat got his own emails about this as well. So since they reported on it, according to this, uh, the the... Reporter Jason Schreier of Kotaku said he got heard from nearly 100 current and former employees with thoughts and stories. And they rounded up 20 of them. 20! I'm not going to read them all because I have my own. But 20, that sort of uh, encapsulates the point here. The first was from a current assistant manager. Your source was absolutely right when they talked about lying to guests. None of us like to do it, but we are all scared for our jobs. Woo! Uh, I don't want to sound like a sob story or anything, but my situation is the norm. I have employees who work at GameStop full-time, and every time they sell a new console or a day like January 24th rolls around, where you have multiple new titles releasing at the same time, they all get extremely nervous about whether or not they're going to hit their numbers. They shouldn't have to worry about that. They're just they're moving product. Uh, the worst part is the fact that all of my staff wants to do right by the guests, and we all try to do that as much as possible, but when we're faced with either losing our jobs or selling a product that the guest doesn't want, Nine times out of ten, we'll sell something other than what the guests want. The only people in my store who who aren't currently, in quotes, used car salesmen are the people who, like me, have to put in their two-week notice. 
This kind of stuff is super frustrating to the guests, that goes without saying, but it makes us feel like shit when we feel the need to lie to our regulars about what we have in stock just to keep our numbers up. And then from another current assistant manager, uh, I just want to let you know your GameStop article is spot on. It might not be corporate, but it's pretty damn close. During an, in quotes, assistant leader conference call earlier this week, an employee from another store asked why GameStop won't lower prices of its pre-owned inventory to undercut sales on new items. And what we could do to overcome such hurdles to improve our COL. Our district leader straight up told her to direct our guests to the pre-owned items in question, talk up the value of buying pre-owned, but they're more money! sometimes, and simply omit mentioning any sale prices. Oh my god, it's insane. In the specific example she used, Watch Dogs 2, our guests would have wound up spending $25 more than they had to. Maximize sales and profit while making service matter my arse, which is another way of spelling ass. So you can see that well, it's not, again, it's not corporate basically saying you must do this. It's the only way for the employees on the ground levels and the assistant managers to make it make any sense and actually work in order to meet these weird scores. And let's go to some of the emails I got. I'm not, I'm not Kotaku, but I did get about five, uh, and I'll just read it. I'll read a few unless they're, unless they're uh, lengthy. Uh, this one first, hey, Pat, I'm not going to make this an eight-page uh, ex- exposition, but it might go that way. You can use my name and information. I have nothing to hide. I reference people. I'll change their names. Hired in 2006 back in Maine during the holiday season. The year the Wii came out. The good old Wii. That massive uh, Nintendo failure. That's my words. <laughs> the first thing I remember from training is learning about asking people to reserve upcoming games and get our Edge card. Power-up rewards was not a thing yet. Not a big deal. It's business, and sometimes people forget that businesses have goals, and obviously you should try to hit those goals to keep your store open. I loved working for GameStop. I spent the next couple years getting to assistant store manager. I thought this was my ticket. I accidentally made this a career and I was going to own it. Then I spent uh, five years as assistant store manager. I watched watched myself get passed over and over again, but I still defended this company. I saw the joy in kids' faces when they came in with gift cards. The great conversations I had with people about classic games and new games, and things started to change. By now, Power Up Rewards was full swing. It was the fastest growing rewards program created. All the rewards are great. Okay, I'll, I'll fast forward. I was finally given a store in 2012. I wanted to do great things. wanted to show people GameStop wasn't this soul-sucking death trap. I turned a store that was losing money into a profitable one. I was recruited to take over the only $2 million store in Maine. This was my chance to really show what I could do. Things were going great. Then again, goals were adjusted. People thought it would be a good adjustment. We were, going, we were going from competing against other stores to just competing against our prior year numbers. That's always good. I love incorporations, Pat, here. I love incorporations thing just because we had a great profit last year. We can increase that profit the next year. They're not, they're not okay with just making another profit, even if it's slightly less or the same. And I've worked for big companies that have always done this. They think it's bad if you make less of a profit the next year, regardless of the, con- uh, of the circumstances of what's happened with your company. Uh, for stores in Maine, uh, that is a godsend. A main store cannot compete with a store from New York City. It doesn't, uh, doesn't make any sense. Keep in mind this whole time you had goals, reserves, per cards, uh, power boards, cards, gameplay guarantees, etc., etc., uh, all while working to ensure you keep your payroll down and other expenses down. Then I moved to the Buffalo area. Maybe this is Ian. <laughs> it was a different ball game. I took over a $2.2 million store, and all of a sudden I was being told I was a terrible store manager because I wasn't hitting these ridiculous numbers, and I stayed. I stayed, and I was belittled and yelled at and told that, told if I only worked for my 44 hours, I wasn't doing a good enough job. All of a sudden, the, the DMs were stretching us thin. 
DMS? What's DMS? Uh, I don't know what that means. District store manager? I don't know. Uh, an average store has between six, 76 to 83 hours based on your volume. Uh, employees are uh, there from 9 a.m. to 9.30 p.m., give or take. Holy shit, a 12-hour workday. I challenge you to make a schedule with four or seven employees plus yourself. You get 44 hours. Your ASM is guaranteed 38. I don't know what these acronyms are. Um, uh, shifts have to be at least four hours with double cover Saturday and Sunday. You'll see how hard it is. Now, remember, remembering the day you need to be doing counts, shipments, and processing, trading, selling games. Plus, then trying to add all this shit to people's experience. They call it the complete game experience. That's when you you get someone to buy the game, RP, uh, game playing guide, strategy guide, etc., season pass with trade-ins. Think about the pressure. I never lied about games being stocked. I never forced people. And I was at a point where I was on a final warning about to be fired because my sales and pre-owned were down. I spent a long time crying every day wondering if I just wasted 10 years of my life. I wasn't going down the path I was seeing people go down. And you can tell the ones that cheat and lie. Their stats are so above everyone. And they're the ones that get promoted. It was hard enough being a girl in a man's world, but this had to come to an end. I got the courage to leave. It felt like an abusive relationship. Oh. Uh, the COL isn't new. It's been around since the beginning of time, and after spending three years looking at profit and loss statements, it, it is a good plan. If GameStop didn't take the tyrant view of it. There is no time to train people, managers, and stress beyond belief, and you are expected to always be on call. It changed so much in 10 years, it makes me sad. I could write books on this, along with a group of my former store, uh, store managers. It's not the employees. It starts at the top with Paul Reigns. Uh, they are in stores, and when they are looking at nothing but the dollars, they're looking at nothing but the dollar signs. I guess Paul Reigns is an executive up above. I don't know if this changed anyone's opinions of place. I don't. I don't. I won't know. I, I know I don't shop there anymore if I don't have to. But if they changed the way they treated people, I would go back. I had fun. I enjoy games, but I don't enjoy being talked down to. Told my family doesn't matter, which is what they do. Holy shit. I just wanted you to have a different view of someone who did everything they could not to fall prey to the lying and cheating that goes on there. If you want to know more, feel free to reach out. Like I said, I'm open book and will let you know anything I know. Thanks, Pat. Always a pleasure to listen to from Jess, who is a uh, tasked to be a, whew, a store manager, lose to, uh, successful in one of main, moves to a Buffalo one where there's different, it's an entire different market, different number of stores, etc., more competition maybe. And then it doesn't hit those same goals there. And then, you know, it goes through hell. Besides, yes, there is more pressure. Uh, sometimes if you're a woman working at one of these stores as well, it's a different experience. You have to, you have to uh, acknowledge that as well. All right. I don't know where I'm going with this at this point. GameStop. The Circle of Life program, it seems, is not sustainable depending upon what store you're at. It also seems that from the from the fact that people are working a minimum of 44 hours a week and told that may not be enough, that's a problem. You don't want to overwork people. That's bad. I've been in that situation before. And, uh, yeah. But even with the one or two saying, hey, everything at GameStop is peachy keen, the fact that the majority... And I have another email here that I'm not even looking at, just called GameStop's shitty shit in the, uh, in the header. So, there you have it. Um, but this will lead me to another topic, and I'll do a segue now to that. So maybe, maybe in response to this Jason Schreier Kotaku GameStop Circle of Life article, um, I guess people are talking about the future of GameStop, and with the future of GameStop, one of the reasons it'll eventually crumble to the ground, people hope so, 
I'd rather see the company change for the better, but what have you. You know, it's going to end eventually. I've said it before. It could be 10 years, could be 5, could be 20, but GameStop will go under at some point or else radically shift how they operate like a Radio Shack has, for example. But people are postulating about the future of gaming, and with that you have to talk about digital versus physical media. And someone who I like from the kind of funny, uh, I guess, YouTube channel, and they do podcasts, uh, Colin Moriarty, who's a gaming journalist. He also gets into politics sometimes. I, I enjoy listening to his take on things. Uh, he had a Colin Was Right video editorial, I guess, about digital games being sort of inevitable. Inevitable. GameStop's slow demise and the all-digital future. So this is a, a was a pretty well put together argument about the and there's the audio from it. I, I still can't get this new laptop in sync with me actually turning off the audio correctly. There it is. But what Colin argues in this uh, 14 minute 30 second editorial is that GameStop's going to be dead in the future. Which I, which I agree with by the way. But the all digital future is going to contribute to that if we, you know, if we just embrace it right now, we just grab on and squeeze onto it. You know, digital is going to be coming uh, for us. Physical media is going to go by the wayside. And we, he actually responded to me on on Twitter, and I disagreed. Why I think we will never get to an all digital future, at least while we're alive, I don't think we're going to get there. We may get to a, a point where. Games will be majority uh, sold via digital sale versus physical. Maybe even dominated. Maybe even like 80%. But I don't think it's it's ever going to disappear entirely. Especially for uh, bigger AAA titles. Or, a, or any Nintendo title of any sort. That's my argument. But I'll, I'll tell you why. I'll, I'll tell you what uh, some of the back and forth we had here. And what Collins... The main gist of Collins' argument was that one of the reasons this is going to go bye-bye is because publishers are going to see digital as a sales advantage versus physical games. Because, obviously, the production cost is non-existent with digital versus physical media. You don't have to make the disc, make uh, you know, print out the, the cases, you don't have to print out the manuals, you don't have to pay people to put them into fucking boxes and ship them out, and that's a little eyelash, make a wish. You don't have to do any of that. You don't have to uh, worry about wholesaling them to stores like GameStop. And then they obviously take a cut. So you get less less money from your overall sale. So Colin's arguing that on the digital storefront, you're going to make more money. And of course, you know, PSN's going to take a cut. You know, Nintendo's shop will, will take, a t- uh, take a cut of sales, Microsoft shop, etc. Of course, they take a cut. But the argument that Colin laid out, and he had some nice little nice little graph and chart showing it, and I don't know off the top of my head, but he said even at a, a lower cost of, say, $50, in theory, the profit margin would still be higher for a, a AAA publisher on that game versus them charging $60 um, for that game to be sold in a store like Target or GameStop or, or Amazon, which is a fine point, because you know even though there is a smaller profit margin... Uh, excuse me, a small profit margin for stores like Target or GameStop. They're, they're making less than 10 bucks on that. Uh, so that's basically part of the inflated price he's talking about versus a lowering your price of $50. And he's talking about, okay, at $50, you, you, you might sell more. 
copies, which is a, which is a fine argument. It's just one I disagree with. It's just one I disagree with. This is why I, I don't think that you're, you're going to see that anytime soon. So far, for new releases, there has been no publisher that was gracious enough, if you can say that, to give up pure profits and say, all right, that $60 physical title out there that we're selling in brick-and-mortar stores, we're going to drop the price to $50 on it on day one of release. Hell, you haven't even seen a $5 price drop, for the most part, on these AAA uh, titles to give people an incentive, which I always said that there should be some sort of drop. I don't know what. Of course, there's always sales at some point, but I'm talking the first month or two when you're making the vast majority of your sales on these new games. You're not seeing that. I think these companies are afraid. They're afraid of a few things. They're afraid of losing money, which they will, but they're also afraid of taking that big risk. And it is a risk. Do you see Rockstar, who's, you know, who moves uh, you know, tens of millions of their GTA games? Is it worth their risk to say, okay, we can sell maybe 10% or 15% more games at a $50 digital price point versus a $60 digital price point? Do you think they like the idea of even trying to, to go into that, you know, sort of tiptoe into that world of marketing research on a game of that scale? Because if in the world of marketing research, and I don't even remember what these terms are, and I used to, of, of, it's price point analysis. It's analysis where you find the point where you're more likely to get sales at a lower price. Which makes sense. If companies do that. If companies have, if companies are selling peanut butter, and if they can sell, uh, say, say normally uh, the, the jar of peanut butter is $3. If they figure out they can sell twice as many at $2 and, you know, 75 cents, then of course they're going to do it. Of course they're going to make that jump and do that. If it's twice as many and the profit margin is still decent. But what if they only sell 10% more at $2.75? Then all of a sudden they're losing money by offering at a lower price. Unless you do that analysis before for that magic lower price point to make up the loss in profit, even though there's more sales, you're taking a huge risk. And I don't see any company willing to do that, at least without some sort of repercussions. Because what happens if you are uh, you're a CEO at a company that's publicly traded, or even not a private company? You're you're a higher up, and all of a sudden your profits take a fucking wash and take a bath compared to what they did last time because you decided to go to that lower price point of ten dollars less on digital. Your 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 gambit is that the people buying all the physical copies are going to just rush into the digital one. But what if they don't know about that digital game for that lower price point? People at GameStop are saying pre-order, pre-order 60. People at GameStop ain't going to tell them. Target's not going to tell them. Walmart's not going to tell them. So either they found out on their own about it, about that new Madden game being offered for less money, with uh, $10, which I don't think is going to happen anyway, because again, they're giving up pure profits, but there's no guarantee you're going to push those people there. And get them over there. All the commercials on TV, you know, and and and, and, and all the promotions for you know pre-order uh, WWE 2K17 and unlock Goldberg, you know, those those incentives come from 
the fact that there's partnerships with brick and mortar stores. Uh, when I got uh, L.A. Noir, I think I ordered the uh, it wasn't was it the GameStop version or the Target version, which offered a couple of free uh, missions that were thrown into that version or not. You know, so I think there's always going to be incentives because of these relationships with these retailers. You don't want to piss off. Now, eventually they're going to be gone anyway, but they got to work with each other still right now. Even though the you know the the publishers still going to make their money with physical. Uh, even though the profit margin uh, may be uh, higher, even at a lower cost, digital, they still got to sell sell a mass amount to these people here in these brick and mortars, and that's not going to change anytime soon. I just don't see it happening. Never mind the fact that the huge advantages of owning a physical game versus digital, it's not even it's not even close. And this is even taking account. We'll even take take into account the fact that. In theory, in theory, we'll say 80 years from now, you can get a discount, a $10 discount on a AAA title uh, at $50 versus 60 All right? So in your head right now, you have a ten, you have $10 in your wallet. Where's my wallet? I'm wearing lounge pants that don't have, I don't have my wallet on. Okay. You have, a, you have an extra $10 in your pocket right now because in theory, you bought GTA 8, the Coney Island Adventure, DLC add-on included. I don't know. You bought you bought GTA 8 for fifty dollars instead of sixty, like your idiot friend did at GameStop. Or now it's now it's just Radio Shack. Radio Shack bought out GameStop in twenty thousand twenty eight, twenty thousand twenty eight, two thousand twenty eight. So you have the extra ten dollars in, in your pocket. Is it worth what you're giving up? Is it worth the fact that say you get the Coney Island DLC version of GTA, you don't like it? If you have that digital version, what are you going to do? Can you can you easily sell that version? Can you return it? No, you cannot. If you have, if you have a physical version, you can throw it right up on eBay or Amazon and get a good chunk of your money back. Depending upon the game, you can get ninety to ninety five percent of that profit ba- uh, profit back or profit back the entire portion of of your of the retail price, especially in that first couple weeks when games are getting blown out at $60 and you put up at $54, $55, you get that money back minus, you know, the 13% PayPal fees, but you, it's not a total loss there. You can't do that. You already got $10 in your pocket. It's already gone from, from, from buying that digital one. Now you can say, yeah, we're, they're going to figure out how to do digital resale and trade-ins. Yeah. Okay. They haven't yet. Remember the debacle of the Xbox One? When they were saying, oh, yeah, we're going to DRM all our games, and but you can trade it with your friends, and you can share them. That went over well, so well that within a day and a half at E3, Microsoft about-faced on the entire thing because the backlash was extreme. Because you're looking at an awful uh, form of DRM if you, if you want to do that. And then, do you think the publishers will, will, will want to do that? Will the publishers easily say, yeah, we're going to allow people to trade their digital games to each other instead of uh, having our shops open where they can just buy more versions of that digital game? What do you think is the most likely scenario? Or if they allow the resale, they're going to take another chunk out of that. They'll say, yeah, we'll, we'll allow you to sell back that game you bought for 50 bucks, but we're only give you 10 bucks credit for it. Versus you having the disc yourself, uh, and you can just sell it but you know whatever you want because that's what we've done that's what's smart and you have full control of the media you bought you know 
that's not worth the $10 to me. It probably isn't to you either. It just isn't. And, and even talking about trading games, like I said, can't do that easily without physical. Letting someone borrow your game, they will figure that out for digital? What if you want to even just give it to your friend for the night? You know? If, you, if anyone out there can have a nice plan laid out digitally, how that could even come to even half the advantage of physical media. You know, I'm, 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 I'm all headphones. I'm all ears to listen about how we can accomplish that without the publishers getting involved or without Sony or Microsoft or Nintendo taking a massive cut of all that action. Because right now at physical, we're cutting all the big corporations out of what we do with our media. We have total freedom with physical media to do what we want. So I think that alone is going to... Uh, I, I, I strongly hope, because I'll be on the front lines of that one, will obstruct the all-digital game uh, revolution being inevitable. Because if there was a huge backlash against it only a handful of years ago, uh, or less than a handful, I expect that to happen the next time it's attempted, if it even is. I expect that. So yeah, let's see, a couple of notes here. Companies won't give up the right, their profits willy-nilly. No, they won't. They won't do that. They'll say, you know, the board member at EA is not going to go, oh, yeah, we're going to lower our cost, of, you know, our price of $50. We're going to be nice guys and do that. Well, I don't, they, they won't do that. They want, they want their monies. They have stockholders. They have stock prices. You know, this isn't lemonade stand time. This is big business. I'm not saying we win because of that. We don't. But this is another reason why it's not going to happen that easily. Or if it does, you're not going to win out, consumer. You're going to lose if we go to all digital games, which is why I don't think it's going to happen, because we're going to fight against it. You're also saying goodbye to a used game market. Again, I don't see a digital used game market happening. The used game market is sort of the budget gamer's paradise. Because you can walk into your GameStop or your Luna Video Games a year from now, two years from now, three years from now, and buy a cheap game and try it out on a whim for $10 or $5. If it was a popular title, a popular title like, what does Metal Gear Solid Five go for nowadays? A game that people like that game, right? PS4, Metal Gear Solid Five. I can buy Metal Gear Solid Five, The Phantom Pain, uh, right now, buy, buy it now for $13.44. One of the bigger games on the PS4. Could I buy it for that cheap? First of all, I, could I buy that cheap on the digital store at this point? Probably not. Probably not. But it's just that sort of a the freedom to use my money the way I want to more and not be sort of handcuffed by an all-digital reality. I just don't like that idea. Yeah, of course, again, there's always sales, but could I do that? Could I walk to the flea market and find a digital game? For a dollar or two that someone just wants to get rid of? No. Can you imagine an all NES digital world that, that I couldn't have bought these games and wasted years and years of my life and thousands of dollars? But anyway, do you imagine? You can't imagine that. That's an awful reality in the future. Which brings me to my next point. Speaking of ugly great carts, game preservation. I think there's a minor pushback now in terms of the reality we now are with mobile games that are shut off and now locked down on individual phones that you have to 
find in the future. You know, games that EA have. Uh, e and I talk about talk, spoke about. Uh, I think one or two EA games that are gone now. You can't get anymore. You can't download or are tied to servers. But is that a, another reality you want to be in that you then have to hunt down in the future to play certain PS4 games or PS5 games or Wii U games? You'll you'll have to search out certain consoles that have these only downloaded games on that console itself. That does that sounds fucking awful. Now, yes, you'll say, well, Pat, with new games, you got to buy them and download shit anyway. I understand that. But I think that's a scenario we're going to get around. And I think in the future, 10 years from now, they're going to allow servers to exist where you can download that information uh, to have them function at least. At least function. But there's plenty of games out there, even in the modern generation, where you can pop it in and just play it. Because a lot of the downloads for a lot of these titles... Um, you know, don't happen right away. We're not talking about, of course, you know, Ubisoft games where, you, you know, the whole game comes out and you have to patch it. But, you know, I, I think we're going to get around that, where, where you still have to have that disc there and you can still experience some portion of the game. I could be wrong, but I still see that happening. Uh, Nintendo's usually all right about that, but then again, I haven't bought a new Nintendo game since Mario Kart 8. Um, you also got to worry about in a digital-only world, the fact that you are using bandwidth to push these games to people, and of course to download them. And unless we get to some sort of future where there's fiber-optic cable everywhere, that's going to be a big disadvantage to people that people that live in uh, rural areas, uh, developing areas, uh, you know, transitioning from third to second world countries, or second to first world countries, where you don't have a healthy infrastructure. Where physical games is really your only choice, because you either don't have the speed to download something that's, you know, 10 gig in size, or it could take you three weeks, or you don't have the bandwidth. Or what if you have a data cap? What if you have a data cap? And data caps exist right now, even if you have a good service. So these are not good op. It's not a good option. I mean, you'll get to all digital, maybe if you say, yeah, we're going to be connected everywhere. You know, but there's always going to be situations where it'd be advantageous to go physical. What about the military? Even just in our country, let alone other countries, we have like a million people in our military. And some of them, uh, you know, they they go on ships somewhere, you know, um, forward operating bases and deserts over there in the Middle East. And they want a game too. They have the right to do that. What's easier, you know? For people like them, They're, what are their choices? They want to get a new game, they grab a few discs, they go. Otherwise, they got to have everything preloaded on their console, and they might be out there in deployment for a year. What if something comes out? They can't They can't get it mailed to them? they got to download it, and they have no internet in the desert somewhere. Or their internet's so fucking slow that they can't do it. These are realities we're living with right now that if you think they can be solved, if you think we can solve them easily... And you can guarantee a lower price point for all these games to make it worth the fact that I'm giving up the freedom to do what I want with my physical media I, I bought and to sell it later or to trade it or let someone borrow it. Again, I'm all ears, but I don't see it happening. I just picked up a, a pretty mediocre game called Die Hard. <laughs> I just don't see it happening. There is a, uh, my buddy Chris Kohler, friend of the podcast, because he's friends with Ian too. Uh, 
from Wired, previously of Wired, I think. I think unfortunately he was let go. Didn't uh, he, he tweeted an article during this conversation in 2013? A, a study killing used games could be profitable or suicide. And the the study that was done by marketing professors of the New York University Stern School of Business and someone from the University of Toronto's Rotman School of Management. That's a bad name for a school of management, Rotman. It's called Dynamic Demand for New and Used Durable Goods Without Physical uh, Depreciation, the case of Japanese video games. So it, it went over the fact that, you know, video game producers have long seen used ga- games as a threat to them because they see it as lost profits for people not using that money that would go into used games to buy new ones. But there's no guarantee that would actually even happen, though. Because, because they could either not just buy those new games if there was no used game market. They don't have the money to do it. For things for reasons I just stated. Because, because alright, there's a $60 new game out that i got to take a chance on versus a $5 or $10 game that, I've know, that, that I, I might like. And, I, and that's a much bigger much smaller drop in the bucket to buy and take a chance on. It also is a return of your dollar, which is what I said, and which is what this study said, because the used goods market, in quotes, provides owners with an opportunity to sell their products. They get the money back so they can rebuy your shit, publishers. So you're not losing money. You're actually gaining new customers by selling us physical media. I can buy GTA, uh, what was I saying? GTA 18, 17? 2028, I can buy that game, sell it for 40 bucks, and then have the money then from that sale, which you didn't lose money on, the, I sold it to someone else. I can now buy Calvin Ball 2029 by EA. Yes, a Calvin Ball game will be out by then. I will make it. So then the publisher's not losing, they're actually winning by keeping the money inside this sort of um, pool, this gigantic pool of used games and new games. So that's a great point as well that I think I said I stated before previously. So that's just a dis- disagreement I had with uh, Colin on this. But uh, check out his argument, though. See, if, you know, see if you agree that you know the digital revolution is, is an inevitable. Can I even say that without sounding like uh, Kim Jong Il from that freaking? Uh, America movie. America. I don't know. But check out his video. Uh, hopefully I can talk to the dude and meet him in the future. Seems like a really smart, sharp, uh, sharp guy. And, uh, yeah, wish I'd eat around here to sort of keep me in line and sort of uh, keep me more structured. But uh, I think I did okay there off the top of my head. I don't know. Maybe I didn't. It's time now to talk about a Kickstarter that I like to signal boost. I think it's the first time I ever used that phrase. Am I using it properly? I want to signal boost... This Kickstarter by Mike Winterbauer, Classic Game Covers, Confessions of an Art Junkie. Um, I have a fascinating and beautiful printed collector's book showcasing the classic game cover art I painted from 1985 to 1994. I'll put the link somewhere here. It has 27, excuse me, 21 days left by the time I recorded this. Hopefully, by the time you hear this, probably eh, it'll be probably two weeks. You got time to do this, but who is this guy? All right, he's been a working artist for thirty years. Uh, he did a string of classic computer games in the eighties and nineties. Uh, I'm gonna click on the video here, but just some of the ones he did on the NES. 
They did Solstice, right? Power Blade. The guy holding the boomerang, which we'll get into. Uh, let's see. He did uh, Wing Commander for Super Nintendo. Wolf Child for uh, Sega CD. Might and Magic. Clouds of Zine. Uh, I think that was PC. Not really totally familiar with the Might and Magic series, besides that's on PC. Um, the cool thing about this, though, is that this guy has already made the PDF of the book available for download. So he's actually gone out on a limb and said, yeah, check out my art. I mean, you can download uh, cover art, but he's actually compiled it together and put it out there for you to sample. And if you want to, you know, if you want to pitch into his Kickstarter, help the guy out, you know, he, he didn't even contact me himself. I'm not getting a cut of this. I just wanted to promote this. I think it's cool. Um, it's also, he's also, he just worked on maps, not just the, not just the covers of these. And in the book, uh, according to this email I got, he goes into detail about how, how he created the covers and included photos he took to use as inspiration. So he actually modeled for the Power Blade guy. Where's Power Blade? Can I reach it? I hope I can reach it. Ah, I can't reach it. Princess Tomato's the last game here. Oh yeah, that means Power Blade's in front of it. So, Mike uh, Winterbauer is really... Power Blade Man. That's Mike Winterbauer. Kind of. Yes. He modeled it. It looks like him. Kind of. Yeah, I guess 20 years ago. That's him. So you're really helping out Power Blade Man, who may or may not be Shatterhand Man, based upon uh, my own observations and evidence and my conspiracy theories, according to a certain NES guidebook. So, you know, check it out. Check it out. He's, he's done other art here. There's a picture of him with a cat on his shoulder. It's adorable. Yeah, yeah. He Inside the book, I'm looking at it right here, it shows him with the boomerang in his hand taking the picture. Uh, Might and Magic. This is... I want to meet Power Blade Man. Absolutely. Might and Magic maps. And yeah, just download download the freaking book. Uh, the book's going to be soft cover, 8 by 10 inches, uh, 122 pages uh, long. He's there showing the book there, you know, an example of it. I can't get over the fact that this is Power Blade Man. I want to I meet Power Blade Man. My favorite art is probably, out of all this, actually, that Might Magic, it's pretty sweet. It's pretty sweet art uh, there. He did Ninja Taro on Game Boy as well. Uh, in terms of, oh, you know, he modeled in his briefs, for, for like a swords and sorcerer sort of thing. He's like, He-Man, that's that's pretty brave of you. Yeah, you're in good shape. You got some nice, there's some nice thighs in the in the 90s there. Pretty nice pretty nice thighs, Mr. Winterbauer. You did some lunges. I, yeah, I can point that out. Why not? Why not? And then um, the book will cost you uh, $40. Ships anywhere in the, in the world. It's $30 for international shipping. Uh, so people can not yell at me as much when I say how much my book costs to ship, and my book weighs over six pounds. So shipping internationally is not cheap from the U.S. Um, and then you can get a poster and book going up there. But, you know, just check it out. Check out. I'm just going to call him Power Blade Man when I meet him. When I meet you, Mr. Winterbauer. Thank you. Thank you for haunting my dreams. Castlevania is getting a Netflix animated series. And I'm not sure if I'm excited or not. I, and I don't say that 
to try to be snarky because this could go in different directions. All right. So this is going to be from the producer of Dread, the second Judge Dread movie, which I haven't seen yet. Producer Adi Shankar. Uh, it's going to be a first season in 2017 with a second following the following year, which I think is 2018, according to the calendar. Um, Warren Ellis is writing from the Red Graphic novel. And Adventure Times' Kevin Cold is also involved. No, uh, no plot is available, nor voice cast yet. They probably get, get got to get on that soon if that's coming out this year, though. Um, in 2016, according to this Engadget article, he suggested that his in-progress show would be dark, satirical, and flip the vampire subgenre on its head. Well, I'm guessing he was talking about Castlevania, but now I'm worried about a satirical uh, Castlevania show. I think people want a straightforward Castlevania show, which is, you know, it's horror-themed, uh, maybe a, a little bit of humor thrown in here or there, but not satirical. They don't want Shaun of the Dead, but a Castlevania version of that. Would they want that? Hmm. Uh, he's vowing the series will be the Western world's first good video game adaptation. Well, hold on there, buddy. Mortal Kombat the movie was pretty damn good. Pretty damn good. I can't speak for the others, but I like that first Mortal Kombat movie. Uh... <laughs> Uh, at least uh, he says that, you know, uh, Netflix usually gives people uh, freedom to do whatever the hell they want with these shows, which is great. So I'm happy about that. He uh, Instagrammed or Facebooked you know, a picture of uh, Castlevania, the, the art from the first game, which is iconic. So I think that's going to be... Uh, it's going to be interesting to see how it's structured. He Facebooked that, by the way. Uh, he Facebooked it. Got a ton of shares. Uh I think you can't go. You cannot go wrong if you have the original uh, Simon Belmont. Obviously, you start you start at the beginning. Um, you'll have him face your classic Universal monsters like the Mummy. You got to throw Wolfman in there at some point, maybe. You know, you do uh, Medusa, like in the game Frankenstein's monster. Did I say that Grim Re- Grim Reaper? No, because I hate all those sickles. But there's a way to do that. And of course, you end up fighting Dracula at the end. Uh, now, of course, they can go maybe later because then the Belmont family gets more complicated, different characters versus having Simon. You, you can do Trevor, do some of those other you know DS game folks. That I don't know as much about. Now, there was a quote saying that this uh, this is not going to be a kid series. This is going to be R rated, so that's good. But again, that you know that, that you can still have humor. Like Shaun of the Dead was R rated, and that was a comedy with horror elements, comedy horror. I don't know if I want to see a Castlevania comedy horror, but maybe I'm maybe I'm not the Castle, maybe I'm not the I'm not the the target audience. Maybe Castlevania now is in that realm of maybe it should be a comedy horror or be satirical. I don't know. It's reportedly going to be two four part seasons, with each episode being thirty minutes long. So you're really getting two two hour movies, right? You're getting one movie for season one, one for season two. That's the way I'm looking at it. You're basically getting uh, a sequel, a movie and a sequel to the movie. And uh, looks like uh, it was written all by uh, Ellis himself, which I spoke about earlier. Um, right, we'll see what happens. That's my, that's my expression. I, I have nothing else to say about this besides, you know, if Ian was here, he can probably talk more about the Castlevania characters he would like to see. And I'm sure we'll get uh, more talk about this 
uh, later in the year before it premieres. But, you know, Netflix is now what I watch all every month. There's something new. I mean, I'm waiting for uh, House of Cards to come back. Longmire will come back soon. Uh, you know, uh, there's always something cool happening uh, on Netflix. This is not an advertisement. What the hell am I saying? Everyone has Netflix anyway, so. It's Game Band, the first smartwatch for gamers. Uh, Kickstarter, it's already destroyed its goal, so whatever I say about this ain't going to matter either way. Uh, powerful smartwatch with a built-in upgradable micro SD drive, gaming design, and exclusive content by FM2 Game Inc. They raised $170,000 for a uh, out of a 75,000 goal with 30 days to go. So this has destroyed it. As seen on The Verge and Gadget Mashable, who, these are places that run, just run the story. All right. So it's a it's a watch. It's a smartwatch, which exists. They exist, smartwatches. Some are expensive, some aren't. Uh, you know, Fitbit's a smartwatch. That's out there. That's dominating the market at a smaller price point, which can do a lot of stuff, but is geared towards counting steps and put, inputting food and shit. Not, not shit. Shit leaves your body, but you know what I'm saying. All right. It's running on uh, an AMOLED uh, AMO LED display, which will be the better ones nowadays. Wi-Fi, Bluetooth 4.2. It's on an Android OS productivity apps um i'm looking there's a there's there's music why wouldn't there be music there's a clock why wouldn't there be a, cl- be a clock there's a watch uh there's a calendar on the front face you're swiping it left and right like you would swipe on the screen on your iphone with little white dots in the bottom to see your you know your list of apps uh, app pages but there's only four per page all right um but it has an upgradable micro SD capability, turning into a high-speed, I'm reading, high-speed portable gaming drive that also hosts your photos, music, files, and more. Our software and unique IC switch means that when plugged into a computer, the micro SD runs our Pixel Furnace game management and launch platform at USB 3.0 speeds. No fucking clue what that really means. I'll be honest. But what I'm going to focus on is the fact that they're marketing this as a gaming watch, Expecting you to be able to play and enjoy games when it's literally the size of a small wristwatch face. So if you think gaming on your phone is not what you want because, you know, your phone is like four inches across, imagine doing it when it's one inch across or one and a half. It's not even more, it can't be more than one and a half. It's small. It looks like an inch across. So in the picture here, um, Oh, this is coming. There's a there's a game. This comes with Pong Centipede and more. Oh, it's a 1.6 inch. Okay, I'm, I was wrong. It's a little bit more than one and a half. It's 1.63 inches. Not exactly huge. Uh, with a flush glass format for easy swiping. Comes with Pong Centipede and more. There's an Atari Red version of the watch, which I have to admit sounds cool. You know, you know, show off your Atari watch and you can play Pong on that. There's buttons, I guess you can move it up and down, because I guess it's too small. If you put your finger over the face, I'm not sure how easily you'd be able to move that and still see what's going on. How are you going to play Centipede on this, though? And more. It's not hard nowadays to, to license a lot of these games, uh, especially from Atari. You know, if Denny's infamous, infamously did it a few years ago, it, it probably didn't cost them that much to get these games on their watch, which, not, which I'm not... That's not. I'm not getting on for that. Hey, it's a cool idea, 
But how good is this gameplay experience going to be? Or is this truly just a gimmick in order to say, I have an Atari watch, yeah, I got Pong and Centipede and Warlords on it. I, I just don't see how that could be fun when it's that small. You're going to be playing like this, up to, up to your face, and trying to swipe it, you know, the button there. Centipede, how are you going to do Centipede? How are you going to do that? I, how are you going to swipe your finger around while seeing where your little centipede little guy is shooting up. What is he supposed to be? A little dwarf on the uh, on the cover of the original uh, box art? Or, or your spaceship? I always like saying you're a spaceship. I think. that's what, Is that what I lean to? I forget. And there's other games available on there. There's going to be indie games you can play on there. Um, I'm not even going to talk about you know how well, how well made this is. It's probably well made. Who knows? I'm not concerned about that. You know, you're gonna have five. You're gonna have a four gig uh, ROM, read-only memory, 512 mega RAM, and you can expand the, the you know micro SD. So you can do whatever you want. Uh, the cost of this early bird is gone. Super early bird was 99 bucks gone. Uh, for that, everyone wanted the Atari one, of course. So so now you can get one of these watches. You can get the Terraria edition, which I guess includes the game, for 149 bucks. Ugh. Or the Game Band Edition for one forty nine. Uh, I'm not saying this is a bad idea. What I'm saying is, don't expect the gameplay experience to be out of this world when you're playing on a one point six three inch screen. And that's for the biggest model, I think. Is that the biggest one? One point six one point six inch square diagonally, right? Or is that across? Is that diagonally across here? Could be diagonally. Either way. I don't think you can play Centipede on this that easily. <laughs> asteroids, we'll see. But Asteroids, you need like, what, five buttons for Asteroids? Are you going to be able to do that on the, the watch buttons? Is there more than two watch buttons on this? Let's see the side angle here. How many watch buttons do we have? There's like three watch buttons. Uh, it might be tough to play uh, Asteroids on here. All right, check it out. I am signal boosting this as well, saying I'm not interested, but maybe you will be for the... Uh, Game Band, the first smartwatch for gamers. All right. It's interesting that 10-year-old games could still be in production for systems that are no longer on the market, at least brand new. The Yakuza games, which Ian talks about from time to time with me, says they're great games and underlooked, all just got reprints, one through four. Now, the thing is, is that these games were not made in huge quantities. Especially, you know, let's see. Yakuza 1 and 2 on the PS2. Yakuza 2 was known as one of the harder to find PS2 games out there that you could not find a copy cheap before. Now you can because now you can get them for $50 brand new. Because you can go on Amazon and get them. You can go on eBay and get them. This is a strange situation. Yakuza 3 and 4 are on PS3. They got prints as well. The eBay seller is called uh, VGP underscore Video Game Plus. So they said, Hey! Hey, we want more of these games made! Make them for us! We'll, we'll make more of these games! Hey, turn on, hey, Bobby! Turn on those PS2 presses again! Get those going. Yeah, we got this laying around. They, they cost nothing. We can print these shit, this shit out and get it out the door. And so they did that. They had the rights to do that. 
Apparently. <laughs> so they so they did. Uh, so, yeah, you can get Yakuza 1 and 2 or $50. Brand new. What did this go for before Yakuza 2? What's funny is people are still trying to sell brand new versions of these games for $120 and $110. $100. Not realizing it. Oh, how about Yakuza 2? Opened for 150 This is a game from 2008 that people thought, yeah, they're never making more of these ever again. I love when this happens. I love it. I love it. What was that shitty uh, Wii U game that they said uh, that they uh, that they they had a limited run, so everyone spent too much money on it, and they immediately printed a second batch of them, and the price plummeted. What was that shitty game we covered? Oh man. Ah, uh, but I love when this happens. You cannot speculate on this shit. You just can't. Just two weeks ago, hundred and sixty dollars sold for. A Yakuza 2. $80. For one that was, I think, opened. $135. Never played. Perfect condition with bids. $54. Not working. This is from January. Two to three weeks ago. This is insane. I mean, but it's great for you guys if you want to play these games. It's absolutely great. Bad on you, speculators. As long <laughs> cartridges is a little bit harder to do that. It's a little bit, little bit harder to reproduce cartridges, but for discs, costs them nothing to print more of these. Absolutely nothing. Now, now you're going to wonder if if other companies see this, or if even hell, if this eBay store that requested more directly from the publisher sees this, maybe they'll go back and do this for other games that they think he'd uh, sell brand new, five, six-year-old games. Or in the case of Yakuza, a game that's, you know, ten years old. Time for some sponsors. Super Audio Cart. Super Audio Cart is a virtual instrument for PC and Mac that lets musicians faithfully recreate the sounds of eight classic video game systems. We're talking the NES, Game Boy, Genesis, and Commodore 64. It works with most any music-making programs like GarageBand or FL Studio and has even received the endorsements of composers like Yasunori Mitsuda and Yuzo Koshiro. To learn more, to learn more, visit superaudiocart.com. Tell them Pat sent you. Twincadia on YouTube. Twincadia is an awesome reality show filmed in an arcade bar. When you mix booze, beer, and arcade games with a staff full of geeks, you get serious entertainment. Check out their YouTube show to see an exclusive behind-the-scenes look at what it means to work hard and play hard, too. In a bar and an arcade setting. If you love retro gaming, beer, and a little bit of jackassery, search for Twinkadia on YouTube. That's T-W-I-N-C-A-D-I-A. Loot Crate, coming back again. On a quest for gear, housewares, collectibles, Loot Crate offers an epic range of pop culture items, less than 20 bucks a month. If you're shopping for yourself or geeking your life, Loot Crate is the best surprise. You know it's coming. Every month it's going to be there. You're going to be like, whoa, a box of geek stuff. And there's a different theme every month and exclusive items. And if you go to lootcrate.com slash pat, you enter code pat, you'll save 10% on any new Loot Crate sign-up. And what's the theme for February? Well, roll your sleeves up. I'm going to try to do that right now. And get ready to celebrate some of pop culture's most put-together franchises. February's theme is Bills and features Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, Batman, 
Lego dimensions, and Tetris, because you're building stuff in Tetris. You're building blocks and stuff and lines. <laughs> you always get your monthly uh, T-shirt, which is, I, I wear a few of them myself, and you get your pin. So if you want to get the build, the build loot crate, you have until February 19th at 9 p.m. Pacific to subscribe and receive that month's crate. When the cutoff happens, that's it. It's over. you got to wait till next month. So again, head over to lootcrate.com slash pat, enter code pat, P-A-T, to save 10% on any new subscription. Thanks so much. Keeping the podcast alive, Loot Crate, and keeping me full of geeky stuff and t-shirts I wear from time to time as well. People have been asking me to talk about this Retroblox uh, retro console. It's a modular setup. Um, I wanted to wait until I saw it in person, and I did so at the SoCal Retro Gaming Expo, which was fun. It was, was a success. Frank was there. I helped MC the uh, auction on Saturday night. I also bid on a few items. I didn't win any, unfortunately. I should have been more on one, and one I dropped out because me and this guy were neck and neck, and we, we both were just be wasting each other's money. So once we realized that, I stopped. But that aside, retro blocks. People have been talking about this. I saw it firsthand at SoCal Retro Gaming Expo. Uh, they had a prototype uh, sort of mold there, but not the prototype actual, I guess, console uh, put together. I'm sure they're working on it, working hard, but they're going to launch a Kickstarter soon. So what is retro blocks? It sounds like a throwback Lego, but it's not. It's a modular res- retro system that in theory is going to let you play Nintendo, Super Nintendo, PS1 games, and a few others. Kickstarter is going to be in April. That's the plan. So how is this going to work? So you're going to have a base system they're going to plan to sell you. So the base system is going to be a disc uh, base, you know, CD-ROM. So you're going to be able to play on that disc. You're going to be able to play... PS1 games, TurboGrafx uh, slash PC Engine CD games, and Sega CD uh, slash Mega Drive CD games, or those few 32X uh, CD games, which are really uh, Sega CD games, but you added in the 32X for more memory. I think, you know, they had, like, I have uh, Scotty Pippen Shut Up and Jam or whatever, uh, or Jam City, and then I have, like, for example, like Zombie Killers, a 32X Sega CD game, and then they had, like... Um, uh, Night Trap, for example, where like you got a, a, a bigger resolution, you know, barely, but you got it. So that's what they have planned. And then they're going to have what they're going to call these element modules that you can buy separately to snap into the base to play. Let's see, they're going to have a Nintendo one or NES, Super Nintendo. Um, they're planning uh, Sega Genesis as well right now. And then others are going to try to get out there as well. Um, uh, it's an interesting approach, and unfortunately, I don't like talking about these things before the Kickstarter uh, for for, this, for projects like this because a lot of it hinges on the full array of offerings and what the price is going to be uh, to see if this, these are going to be doable or a success or not. But I'll just try to go by the information we have now. Uh, according to uh, the person they interviewed, this will not be $300, at least, I guess, for the base unit. It won't be $300. Retroblox will include one element module and controller. It'll be, and it'll be much less than a base Nintendo Switch. All right. That's good. Additional element modules will vary in cost depending on complexity, both software and hardware, but won't cost any more than a new video game. Okay. 
So that gives you a hint. So you're looking at these modules then, according to this, you're going to probably be somewhere in that $50 to $60 range for the new modules, according to plan here, uh, besides the base then. And we're not sure what that base is going to be yet, though. If I had a base, uh, if I had a base, I had a guess that base probably would be over $100 or around $100. If they wanted to move them, I would do $100. And then hopefully you make your money back on all those bases, even if you're taking a slight loss on the, on the, you know, excuse me, on the modules. And even if you're taking a loss on the base itself, those element modules, you'll make it back. But then again, I'm not the one doing this. I don't know what the costs are putting this. I have no idea what the R&D is for this. Nintendo 64, uh, they said there's some legal concerns that stand in the way of that. Uh, Nintendo 64 is technically very doable on RetroBlocks, but Nintendo filed many, many patents for that system, some as recently as 2001. So once those patents run out, they can move on forward. All, all these other systems, the patents already already gone on them. You know, they don't have to worry about any emulation concerns, things like that. And that brings me to uh, what they what they want to do with this. Oh, by the way, here's the, the full list of modules again. Uh, so your base CD slash DVD drive is going to be PS1, and these are not region locked, PS1, Sega CD slash 32X CD, and then PC Engine slash uh, Turbo CD, and then Super CD-ROM games, and the arcade CD-ROMs. For example, the arcade CD games are something like uh, like Fatal Fury. As an example, I have a couple of those where you need to have more memory for those games. And then the element modules that are planned for Kickstarter Right now, our NES, uh, Super Nintendo slash Super Famicom, Super Game Boy will said will work fine uh, for play only, but you won't be able to back up your games. Uh, then you have Genesis, uh, then you have uh, 32X that you can plug into that, and then you have Master System via Power Base Converter. Atari 2600, uh, 7800 is currently not confirmed for support, but it might be before the Kickstarter, and then you have TurboGrafx-16. So you have a good chunk of these consoles you want. To get out there. Um, which I think is great. One of the glaring ones though. That is missing here. That I think would be great. To include would be Sega Saturn. Uh, that's a hard one though. To emulate properly. Notoriously a difficult one. To get done properly. So the fact that they have a disc. Base though. Means in theory you'd be able to, to edit. Hopefully at some point with firmware. If not a new base. Uh... You know, you'd hope you wouldn't have to do a disk base and uh, disk element module and plug it into the base of that. You know, if that's if that's how you want to go. But yeah, hey, hey, if you can add Saturn later, that'd be a slam dunk for me, absolutely. But the fact that this is an opportunity to have a disk replacement in the vein of a Retron Five to me is pretty pretty important because I think we're going to head in that direction. Where I mean, there's millions and millions and millions of PS One consoles. Less uh, Saturns, but, uh, you know, we'll get there at some point. Everyone considers N64 to be retro. Everyone considers uh, Dreamcast to be... Uh, I consider Dreamcast to be retro, and Sega Saturn is definitely retro because, you know, it's you know it's it's 20 years old uh, at this point. Some, some other sort of information about this from the press release and other news. And again, whenever we talk about this stuff, you, you have to try to keep a level head. This, we're not even at a Kickstarter stage yet, let alone development of a lot of these modules. And I don't think it's going to be easy to develop some of these modules. That's my perspective. Especially since this is not supposed to be quote-unquote straight emulation, but they're going for some hybrid emulation 
uh, approach. So patented hybrid emulation technology. And they're sort of keeping that close to the vest, what that means, uh, which I guess these are patenting, they have to. But they want you to be able to, uh, you know, incorporate modern elements into this in theory into their OS. So be able to twitch instantly from the OS. Uh, you'll be able to share, you know, stuff, you know, I guess, pictures and videos of what you're doing. So they want to have the amenities of a modern console, be able to record video as you play it, which, again, sounds cool in theory because a lot of people do that anyway with modern games or even with retro games are doing that. Uh, be able to rate games, um, connect and share. Yeah, share screenshots on to Facebook and video to Facebook and, uh, or Twitter. You can have friends on there. Nothing about, I guess, I guess it'll be a, maybe too complicated at this point, but I would love to see some sort of online playing function. I mean, you can do it with emulators. Why not be able to code that in? I mean, it probably requires some... you got to get, get into there, though, and do that. But, hell, if, if you can play other people on the Super Nintendo emulators and Nintendo emulators, and this is emulation technology in theory, just using physical media, why not be able to do that? And you are going to be able, I think, to, to, to uh, back up games, though, once you install them. So it's basically taking the Retron 5, you know, where... you. You take the game off, but you're not. You're, you're playing this off of the off of the physical media, though. I think when you when you have it, but I think it's going to give you the option to back up your games. That could be cool, especially for disc-based games. You have to keep loading them up; they'll load quicker. But but yeah, again, wait until the Kickstarter before you you know rah rah anything too much. Uh, keep a level head. We've had plenty of plenty of Kickstarters and crowdfunded stuff in the past systems and games but definitely systems that have come and gone for some reason i can't think of the big one off the top of my head that have been massive failures i'm not saying this is going to be a failure i'm just saying i don't know what this is going to be until it's out and getting back to the price the price is very important because the price is sort of a a uh, i guess catch 22 with this because the more people support this on the kickstarter the more they can order these modules and and That'll keep the production cost down. It'll shrink. The more you order something, you know, the costs come way down per unit. But unless they have a nice price, people won't order this. So well, I have to wait and see, and hopefully Ian will be back by then to comment about what he thinks is reasonable or not. But I'm hoping this base is under $100. Uh, we know the modules are going to be, you know, uh, they said that no more than the price of a new game, so we're talking $60. Let's just say $50 or $60. So in theory, then, if you want to get all this stuff, you know, if you want to get the, the base and all the modules, you're looking at something uh, in the range of $250. Uh, maybe. Could be more, depending on what the base is. But in my head, if it's $100, $250 to 300 that that's could be reasonable if this is all, you know, this is all on an HDTV, if they add all the, the accoutrements of a modern console. If it works right, that could be a reasonable solution. But if it's more than that, I don't know. So let's just see what this is going to be in April. I'm going to come back to that uh, just because I don't want to rah-rah this too much until we see what, what's what's going on. But the good news is that the people working on this aren't people that have no right to work on stuff like this, like people that worked on a certain other past game console that crashed and burned. I mean, that that's, some, that's important to keep in mind. I'm going to read some notes from the press release here. Um, and also on the website, you can see mock-ups of the modules and the base. The base unit, for the most part, looks like something like a docking. Remember, like those old like Dell docking stations 
for like your laptop. You put them on, and then you connect a monitor to it, like USB ports. The, the base kind of looks like that, where you, you the base will have your your DVD drive there, and then if you get your modules, you'll just slide it and lock them in there. And then your module, for example, there, like the one I'm looking at, has like you know your Super Nintendo slash Super Famicom slot because it's the same, and the two controller ports in the front. So that's what your module is gonna gonna consist of. First, uh, world's first modular and fully modernized retro game console from the pr- press release. Sure, you know we'll, we'll see, but that's the plan, and I like the idea in theory if if it's if it works and if it's cost effective. Uh, full eight, 1080p HD resolution. All right, hybrid emulation, patent pending, allows for direct hardware reading of specialized chips and mappers contained within historically difficult to emulate retro game cartridges. All right, that doesn't say it's FPGA, because as we know, FPGA for all these consoles don't really exist. It only exists for like what Super Nintendo, and they're hard to develop. So they said, they said according to their press release. Hybrid emulation allows for the highest possible speed while using classic game controllers connected directly to RetroBlocks element modules. All right. We'll see what happens here. I'll tell you what I'd be in for. They'd be brilliant if they targeted those expensive consoles. So, like, for example, probably extremely difficult to do or someone would have done it already. Let's say, for example, they are able to do a Neo Geo module for under $100. Those will sell... Those will sell out. What, are you kidding me? It'll be beyond hotcakes, you know, sort of territory at that point. Hotcakes? Hotcake territory? It would be beyond at that point. I'd be interested in that. But um, we'll we'll see you back here in April. We'll see what the costs are. Uh, You know, and uh, yeah, that's all I can say at this point. I'm hoping they can get that Sega Saturn thing worked out. Not Not even Dreamcast. Let's get Saturn worked out at some point. Uh, for that base module. I think that would be a, a good way to go. Oh, God. Oh, God, why? Why do I have to talk about PewDiePie again? I made a semi-vow last time that I didn't want to discuss him again. And I actually ignored this story at first when it was first when it first came out, I think, like, early January. Uh, but now it's, it's blown up. I, I have to address it. Lots of people are asking me to. Okay, so Felix Shelberg, PewDiePie, Pi was just, uh, let's see, on February 13th and 14th, was released, from, I guess, from his contract or, or terminated from his Maker Studios contract, which is, in essence, Disney, since Disney bought him a couple of years ago. So Disney got rid of Felix Shelberg. Felix got rid of uh, Felix. <laughs> Felix got rid of Felix. Disney got rid of Felix from Maker Studios. Then the following morning, which is Valentine's Day, Google decided to do two things. They got him off of their uh, Google preferred uh, ad list, which basically, I guess, I guess there's approved YouTube channels which which get the higher end uh, advertisements, which are worth a lot more money. So they did that, but then they also canceled the Scare PewDiePie season two show that is on not RedTube but YouTube Red. The subscription service, one of the exclusive, one of the big exclusive pieces of content you would get for subscribing. Wow. Okay. Why did they do this? All right. So the Wall Street Journal uh, came out with a report 
where they identified not just one video, which I'll get into. They identified, I think, over the past, not even 12 months, uh, nine videos that had either Nazi and or anti-Semitic jokes or imagery contained within those videos. And then they they got in t- touch with uh, Maker, and then soon after, Maker dropped them. Now, I'm not sure if it was because of Wall Street Journal directly, or I'm, I'm guessing they had planned to do this anyway, if they did it that quickly. And said, okay, this is a nice time to do it. Disney doesn't want anything to do with someone that has a lot of anti-Semitic shit in their videos. You know, jokes or not, and I'll get into that. And they just said, all right, this isn't worth our time anymore. Google said, this is definitely not worth our time. You know, and good old Felix has been trying to be edgier. I've covered it over the past year. He's trying to grow up a little bit. You know, he's like he's like Justin Bieber crashing his car and getting tattooed. It's like, oh, he's grown up now. Look at look at our, our little Felix. He's all grown up. On Twitter, I likened it to, uh, you know, a, a kitty movie star grows up, does softcore porn. You know, you want to try to get away from that image and fan base you had before. Maybe you're ashamed of it. Maybe you feel you have to grow professionally by doing that and try to be an adult. And this is the best way you do it by trying to be edgy and extreme. And again, this is not a um, this is not a uh, free speech issue. He can do whatever the hell he wants on his videos. It's is it the right of the people associated with him to cut ties if they have under contract? Absolutely, they could do that. That's their right to do that. No one's taken, uh, you know, no one's taken his right to make these videos, uh, take, take the videos away. Even YouTube's even said, you know, people can be provocative if they want to, as long as it's not directly hate speech. So it looks like three of these nine videos, though, were taken down by Felix himself, though, over the past uh, day or so when I'm recording this on Valentine's Day, which is, again, sort of questionable why you would do that unless you were scared. You were scared something bad was going to happen and it happened anyway. But is Felix going to be okay from this? I think he's going to be fine. He's a multi-multi-millionaire. He doesn't need uh, Maker Studios. Maker Studios showed, hell, they don't need him. And Google showed that they really don't need him. They can piss him off. Which is exactly what I said before. If you got rid of his views, it's not like that ad revenue from those videos wouldn't go directly to someone else immediately. To fill in that gap. Because there's not enough ads to go around on YouTube. Not by a long shot. Versus the amount of content. Even by the quote unquote premium content creators. Not enough ads. PewDiePie doesn't matter. To Google YouTube. He can, he can, he can, pretend, he, he can pretend he does. He really doesn't. It's a, real, it's a weird relationship that he has where. And I'm, I'm, I'm trying not to bash the guy. I'm trying. But it's. You you can't pretend to be a, a big grown up and and put on your big boy pants and try to be edgy and try to pretend you're you know some sort of Andy Kaufman character and then turn around then and appear in the YouTube you know end of year celebration video and still do that shit and then delete videos from your account because you're afraid of getting into trouble. Mm. Hey, you take the risks as an artist. You want to do that? If you you think you you think you want to do provocative material, go for it. But then, if this shit happens, 
I'd have more respect for you if you stand by it. Stand by your decisions. Be a man. Be a man and do it. Because now you're just now you're just looking like a you know. You're looking like you're scared of yourself, of your own self branching out. Do it. Make 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 those fucking shitty Nazi jokes in your videos. Go for it. Think that you know having two poor Indian guys uh, on that Fiverr website that you paid a, a small amount of money do a death to all Jews uh, like they unfolded this cloth and held it up for you. Hey, if you think that's cool, you think that's going to make you an adult, make you mature, buddy, do it. But then don't be a pussy when mommy and daddy come knocking on your door and then delete the video then. Because now you're seeing real world real world consequences to your actions. That's all I'm saying, buddy. Pick one or the other. And people were, were trying to... Uh, people went after him and... Because it, it's anti-Semitic. Of course the message is anti-Semitic. I don't know how else you can could uh, spin that. He knew it was anti-Semitic. But then the question is, you know, is it a joke? I don't think it's a joke because there was no punchline. So, so what PewDiePie claimed was that it was satire and it was a point that... His point was that it's so fucking shallow that, well, look what you can get people to do on the internet for money. And it's like... The world's an awful fucking place. You can you can pay people to do whatever you want. You can pay people to, to kill someone if you want to. Maybe not on the internet easily, but you can you can do that. You know, you can hire people to draw awful things or say awful things. You can pay people to do whatever you want, like anything. Have you seen Craigslist at all? So it's like it, that's not satire. You're just you're making a point that doesn't need to be made in a non-subtle ugly, anti-Semitic fashion. So that's just a weak defense for that. And I didn't talk about it before because I thought it would go away, but it's caught up with him. But what the Wall Street Journal did, though, was found out that wasn't the only instance of anti-Semitism in his videos. That was a joke. He's done it eight other times. And they they did a little montage. Montage! Of some of the stuff he did. In their montage was a Hitler... One of his videos had like a Hitler segue image that I guess was supposed to be cute. I don't know. Like, is Hitler imagery funny to anyone out there? I mean, there hasn't been the World War II in, in 70 years now. Is that? It's not. It's just not. Who are you impressing? Like, out there? I don't understand. Besides the the uh, white supremacists and neo Nazis, which are not, now you're now they love you, PewDiePie. Which is this is good for you. Hey, you gave them that you gave them a YouTube hero. Good job, buddy. Good fucking job by doing all this shit. So that was one of the, the things he did in the video. Another one was he actually went out and thought it was a good idea to buy a German a German uniform, a World War II era uniform, and wear it while watching like some sort of like um, Nazi propaganda video from the time. Uh, showing like a, a parade in Germany, while while like the German, I think it was like the the German like anthem played in the in the background, like the Nazi like theme. And I just, you want to call it satire to, to try to defend it, that's fine. But satire is supposed to have like an underlying reasoning behind it. So people were saying, I'll give you a good example. So like people were saying, well, 
Disney are hypocrites because they fired him for uh, Nazi jokes, but they did a Donald Duck cartoon in like in like nineteen you know forty five that had Donald Duck as a Nazi. The the Disney cartoon everyone's referring to, if you're gonna be this fucking obtuse, was a U.S. film that was an anti-Nazi propaganda because we were at fucking war with them. So it showed Donald Duck trying to be a, a you know a Nazi. He was reading Mein Kampf, for example, which was Hitler's famous book, and it shows the Nazis to be fucking idiots. That is entirely different from a death to all Jews banner. That has not even a bit of irony to it. There's a huge difference there. And the other huge difference is that we're not at war with the Nazis anymore. (laughs) We're not engaged in a world war where millions and millions and millions of people are dying and getting slaughtered. It's just beyond belief that people are trying to excuse it for that. Again, you can make whatever shitty joke you want to that's shallow. And, and is there only for shock value because you want to p- appear like a big boy. But there's going to be consequences when advertisers or your parent company complains about, about what you're doing. And this is what's happening. PewDiePie is not the Marx Brothers. He's not a Disney cartoon that's an anti-Nazi propaganda. Um, he's not Charlie fucking Chaplin. And he's not the Three Stooges that are depicting how awful... And how weird and and poking fun at the Nazis. That's not that's not what this guy did. This guy couldn't dream to be one percent as genius as those other people. He's making bad sophomoric jokes, and the worst part is, even if you wanted to claim it was satire, his audience doesn't know that for the most part. His audience is primarily, you know, under 18. So even if they started watching him five years ago when they were 10, you think a 15-year-old is going to see a death to all Jews joke and understand what the satirical edge of that was and not just think, oh, it's funny. He's making fun of Jews. There's no fucking underlying point to that joke. There's There's nothing clever. There's no spin on buying a, a German World War II uniform and watching Nazi propaganda videos. Because if you're going to bring up the Blues Brothers having Nazis in it, or or a Mel Brooks film, just get off my fucking channel and don't listen to my podcast. If you're going to if you're going to try to compare what they did in movies or what Charlie Chaplin did, or again the Marx Brothers versus PewDiePie. So why was he dropped so quickly? Well. Here's the dirty secret about these big YouTubers. A lot of them don't make these networks money, these MCNs. I can almost guarantee you that PewDiePie had either a 95% revenue share on the ads on his videos or probably even a a 100% revenue share just so that maker could say, oh, we have PewDiePie on our channel to help promote the other people on there. So what what Disney did was like, all right, we have this guy who's trying to be edgier the past year, who is probably going to be a pain in the ass more sooner than later. And you know what? Looking at the P&L, profit and loss, we're not making that much money off this guy at the end of the day. We're not making really anything off of his videos. He's making most of it. And we're not getting the ad deals. Ah, fuck it. Let's cut him. We're Disney. 
We don't need this fucking bullshit. And that's what they did. And Google probably said the same thing. We're just going to... And again, he's still going to make money on, on, on YouTube. Maybe not the same amount of money. But he's still going to be making money. So he's going to be fine. It'd be interesting to see what the other YouTubers say about this. If they stand by the biggest YouTubers, they think, oh, speaking out against PewDiePie might potentially hurt my career. Especially like people like in the Revel mode he's with, like Markiplier. Is he going to think it's okay? I didn't see a comment by it yet. You know, the other people, I don't know, is there someone named Cupcake or something? Jacksepticeye, these guys, are they going to think it's all okay? Are they going to reference a fucking uh, Disney cartoon from 70 years ago or claim that Walt, D- Walt Disney was a Nazi sympathizer, which there's little evidence of, by the way, and do all this stuff, stuff, shit that happened 70 years ago in order to justify this? It's called a straw man, first of all, but I don't, I don't know about that. I don't know if this is a... This, I'm going off the rails a little bit here, but I don't know if someone like PewDiePie would have made these jokes in the same way if the target wasn't uh, Jewish people. I think that's uh, probably to him was a soft target, especially from his part of the world, which we'll get into. Uh, I would have... If he was also thrown in like, all right, uh, you know, if he, if he, if he singled out uh, maybe Muslims uh, or black people for his jokes, would, uh, maybe he would be making, making a larger point of insulting everyone. But no, I don't think he had the balls to do that. I don't think he had the balls to like, you know, hire those two guys in India and then have a picture have them draw a picture of Muhammad. You think he had the balls to do that? Nope. You think he'd have the balls uh to to hire them to say something bad about black people? Nope. Don't see that happening, Felix. I don't. So not only are you trying to be edgy, but again, I think you're a fucking coward. Because you picked, I think, was a soft target. You know, what you thought was a soft target, but it finally caught up to you. And the other thing that bothered me about hiring two poor people, seemingly poor if they're, you know, uh, to do that, they accepted only like five or ten bucks to, to, to make an anti-Semitic, uh, like, little banner. It's, it's, to me, the same, or close to, for your own amusement from your fucking throne and perch, you know, like paying homeless people to fight each other for your amusement. These are people that are down on their luck or in poverty. You you want to do something? You want to amuse yourself with something vile, and it was vile. So here, take take some money, dance. Uh, you know, beat each other up for my amusement in my court. You're my gestures. You know, start here's. Yeah, you know, throw two swords on the floor to my court gestures. All right, do it. Just kill each other for me. It's this sort of gross statement of power uh, that oh, I can get away with this. And for those of you out there who are going to defend him, saying he didn't know they were going to do that in the video, doesn't make, that's besides the fucking point. He watched it. He hired them, and so the intent, intent was there to begin with. But then he edited it. It wasn't a live stream. He edited it into a video that he knew would get massive views. Am I wrong? What's the difference if he if, if he knew they're going to do it or not? The resulting video was exactly the same. Do I read this right? So besides showing a clip from a Hitler speech in a September 24th video criticizing a YouTube policy, oh yeah, because that <laughs> because because a YouTube policy is definitely you know tantamount to Nazi Germany. 
Yeah, that's that's not yeah, that's fair. Uh he also posted swastikas drawn by his fans on October fifteenth and watched Hitler in a brown military uniform to to, to conclude a December eighth video, which I which I commented on. He also played the Nazi party anthem before bowing to a swastika in a mock resurrection ritual on January fourteenth. And included a very brief Nazi salute with a Hitler voice over saying Sig Heil and the text Nazi confirmed near the beginning of a February 5th video. Jesus Christ, dude. Hack shit. Like, this isn't just like one or two things over years and years. This is like multiple things over a few months. That's your go-to? What's what's the Nazi joke I can do this week? Representative Maker Studios told the Wall Street Journal, although Felix has created a following by being provocative and irreverent, he clearly went too far in this case. The resulting videos are inappropriate. Uh, then on Tumblr, he posted an apology. So his apology as my mic starts to buzz. Some have been pointing to my videos and saying that I'm giving credibility to the anti-Semitic movement. The post states, I was trying to show how crazy the modern world is. Specifically, some of the services available online. So the way to do that is by being anti-Semitic. To show how crazy the modern world is. There's no other way to do that. Like, we don't know how crazy the modern world is without hiring poor people to make a death to all Jews banner. That's the only way to find that out. <laughs> that's that's exactly what you went towards. What does this say about you if that's what you ran towards to make your point? The first thing you thought of. He then said, I think it's important to say something. I want to make one thing clear. I'm in no way supporting any kind of hateful attitudes. I make videos for my audience. Yes, your audience of 13-year-olds. That's that's great. All the anti-Semitism, they're going to love that. Yeah, it's fantastic. I think of the content that I create as entertainment, not a place uh, for any serious political commentary. I know my audience understands that. Do you? How do you know they understand that? And how do you think they're, they're just not going to get their jollies with this anti-Semitic, uh, quote-unquote, jokes, and then carry that with them, even on some base level? How do you know that? I know my audience understands that, and that is why they come to my channel. Though this was not my intention, I understand these jokes were ultimately offensive. All right, so second season of uh, Scare PewDiePie is done. He's off of uh, Maker Studios and Disney. Um, some other some other MCN will pick him up, uh, obviously, because they're going to say, oh, we have PewDiePie. So... I, I don't see his mainstream uh, persona taking off much after this. So this could be, not saying this is going to be, it's not the end of PewDiePie, but he's sort of reached the plateau of, I think, where he could have reached uh, by this. I don't think if he had done all this shit uh, before, he would have been on Stephen Colbert or if South Park would have been as easy to work, uh, you know, as, 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 they wouldn't be as enthusiastic to work with him as they were a couple of years ago. No one said you can't do it. You can do whatever you want. Do more hack Nazi jokes. You know, go ahead. Keep doing them. But, you know, some people that you're associated with don't like that. And that's their right, too. It's not a free speech issue. It's not. Good news, everyone. So we talked about a game, a Korean Famicom game last year that was hard to find called Magic Kid Goo Goo and it was unique in that it, it's one of the, the few games left that the ROM was never dumped and preserved so it was hard to find this 
game to begin with. So we talked about it being found, but then they were trying to work on it getting dumped. And thankfully, the ROM's been dumped. It's been dumped in part thanks to good old uh, Frank Savoldi, video game preservationist. Check him out at Lost Levels, and he soon will be uh, doing his uh, video game preservation website uh, that's going to be called... Don't have it in front of me yet. I gotta look at look him up. <laughs> but anyway, back to the game before I derail my own fucking topic. So, Magic Kid Gugu is a platformer. We thought it looked cute uh, a year ago when me and Ian discussed it. Magic Kid Gugu was made by some of the people that did Buzz and Wall Dog, similar style. If you're, if you're familiar with that, uh, same sound effects rip off of Tiny Toon Adventures, according to Frank Cifaldi. Similar aesthetic, yeah. The graphic style is very similar. Uh, there's mini games in this. There's a shop system. The ROM size is twice of that of Buzz and Waldock. The, da- the ROM's been released. And there's magazine scans from Frank's. This is fantastic. Unfortunately, it only plays in uh, either a jailbroken analog NT Mini or the latest M- Metafen, which I'm guessing is an emulator that I have never heard of. What is that? Multi-system emulator. Mednafen. Huh. So if you want to try one of your traditional Nesticle or FCEUX, I guess it wouldn't work in there. They also dumped another game called Dooley Bravo Land, but the owner of the cart wants to do something with the ROM themselves before it's out in the wild, so it's not posted yet. All right, but at least it's dumped. So this is great news. Uh, check out the, some of the screenshots here uh, or, or online. There's also an annotated long play out right now. For the first time ever. Well, no, this was from March of last year, but it wasn't dumped yet. So, this is, uh, you can see what this game, ooh, God, they just put, set up a camera in front of the screen. Well, okay. I should probably download the game and just play through it and have a better view on it. But it's cool. It's like a, you know, Super Mario Brothers 2 style. You can, uh, it's platform stuff. You can pick up, uh, keys and, and, and objects and throw them at enemies. Uh, there's a male and female main character here. You can get, you know, power-up items. Looks like a fun little game. I'll try it at some point. As long as an emulator works, I can try it. You know, get mapper support for that. And then you want to check out and support uh, Frank Cifaldi. He does good work. If you have anything undumped out there, please get in touch with him. I, I uh, At Soul Counter Gaming Expo, someone had a NARC prototype that they, they for sure contained even more violence than the actual NES release game. Uh, this is a vendor, and I, and I asked them straight out, you know, do you have this game dumped? You know, and they looked at me like I was crazy. So I, I implored them to buy, a, you know, a little device that costs like 20, 25 bucks to get the ROM dumped and preserved, even if they don't release it, just to preserve it. Um, or to get in touch with someone like Frank to do so. Because Frank is great with this stuff. So go to GameHistory.org, which is a video game history foundation, non-profit, that's, that's a 501c3 charitable organization that's going to be... Uh, run by Frank as one of the war members, Steve Lynn's another, to help get more of these uh, games out there, get them found, get them bought off of like Yahoo auctions, or a lot of these Japanese prototypes are being found, get them preserved. Not just the games, artwork, things of that nature. It's very important work. Um, besides, yes, you want to play these games, of course. You want to play them, uh, brand new games that have been discovered, but you don't want these games to be lost to the annals of time. Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild is going to have it's going to have DLC or what they're calling a season pass. 
Some people are annoyed at this. I don't care that much about this. So this is according to a Forbes article. This will be the first time it's going to have, quote-unquote, season pass or expansion pass, as Nintendo calls it. It's going to be $19.99. It's going to include two DLC passes. Excuse me, two DLC packs. First release is going to be in the summer and include a Cave of tri- cave of Trials challenge, a new hard mode, and a mysterious new feature for the in-game map. The second DLC pack is going to launch holiday 2017 and include a new dungeon and story, new story content. That's cool. These can only be purchased together. The DLC will be for both Wii U and Switch. I don't have a huge problem. I don't. Nintendo, this is one of the signs Nintendo's growing up. Um, and I know you guys both want Nintendo to fail and then also modernize at the same time. This is one of the ways they're modernizing. DLC. I bought the, uh, did I buy the Super Mario Kart DLC? I think I bought one of them. Ian definitely did. You know, it had, had more tracks and it had uh, more racers. You know, I don't, I don't have a huge, huge problem with it. I just don't. Um, you don't have to buy it. It's not necessary. This isn't stuff that's really, you know, really key. Like the new story content would be, be awesome. Once you finish the main quest and, and most of the, you know, the mini quests, they put a, maybe another story and maybe like another half a game in there. That's fine. That, that's worth 20 bucks, I think. It's not exorbitant. Um, yeah. Uh, gamers who purchase the expansion pass will also get three special in-game chests. The first will include a shirt with a Nintendo Switch icon on it that Link can wear. Okay, that's silly. The second and third include in-game items. All right, that's silly. Um, they want to keep people, you know, playing this game, obviously, six months later. Uh, to, to release it in December, holiday season is great, because then they can probably even, hell, doing the marketing for Nintendo, they can even probably put out a limited edition physical version that includes the DLC built into it to get to entice people to buy it around the holidays, to get more sales if they want to do that as well. It's extra marketing because really, let's be honest, uh, between March and probably September, this is really the Nintendo Switch beta phase. It's an open beta. You know, they're not going to have a huge amount of games out, just like the 3DS when it came out originally in March of, uh, what was that? March of 2011. Sort of like an open beta. Uh, their, their online service is going to be totally up and running. It's not going to launch with even Netflix or a web browser. That'll come later. But their paid subscription is not going to kick in until fall of 2017. It's a beta. They wanted to make money right away without waiting, which I think is a little bit of a mistake, but whatever. They wanted to get the money rolling. They wanted to beef up before E3. They could have probably released this in June or July, have a much better starting, you know, starting off point potentially. But they wanted to do it this way. So this is a way for people to have you know be talking about Zelda seven months from now, not just right now, eight months from now. But yeah, the link with the Switch uh, shirt on. Uh, all right, I'm, I'm more into like the extra story shit stuff on the maps, you know, that you can find. Not necessarily a fucking little, you know, little shirt to put on. If it was a real shirt. Yeah, well, that, that could be cool. Why not? So Nintendo's growing up. Oh, Nintendo's growing up in front of our eyes. You know why they're also growing up though? Because they, they said we're definitely doing two to three mobile games per year. So, you know, you, you can't count Mitomo as a game. Uh, but you can definitely count uh, Super Mario Run as a game. Absolutely. And then, you know, Pokemon uh, Go, it's a semi-Nintendo game, but it's really not. So, in an investment Q&A, President uh, Kimishima 
said that we plan to continue releasing two to three titles per year that consumers could enjoy as Nintendo smart device applications. Again, these aren't AAA titles. It's not ROMs being put on there. Totally different games. I have no problem with this at all. If it was as well made as Super Mario Run was, I'll probably buy it. Depending. I, I think uh, Super Mario Run was definitely worth $10 for the amount of uh, fun I got I had with it. The amount of time I played it. You know, it took me a while to find all those black coins. Uh, building Little Kingdom was fun. The uh, Toe Trial is pretty fun. Pretty polished. Could they have sold more at four ninety nine or five ninety nine? Absolutely. A certain uh, NES guide app is only four ninety nine, by the way, on Android and iOS. But um, I had to put it in. You're always promoting your. Uh, I think they'll learn from Super Mario Run, and probably price it lower for better conversion. I don't see Nintendo going to a you know ad based game system or freemium. I don't see that being their style. I'd rather see them, you know, they probably feel like, okay, we want all our gamers to enjoy this in the same way without having to pay for, oh, you know, Link can only swing a sword 20 times per day, but if you pay for a dollar more, you can swing 100 times more today. They're not going to do that. They just won't. I think Animal Crossing is perfect for something like a smartphone game, by the way. Again, they got to be smart. If they see what's already out there in popular, like the strategy games like Mobile Strike and do like a Zelda version of that, you don't think that would sell? Some sort of like, you know, you know, like real time sort of strategy game, uh, but set in like Legend is like set in Hyrule. That that would sell like hotcakes. That wouldn't even cost them that much to actually produce. Not at all. Uh, da, da, da. It is possible to provide applications that feel related to the dedicated video game systems, even if they do not have any direct connections," said Officer Shinya Takahashi. I believe that smart devices, particularly bigger ones like tablets, are easier for smaller children to use, which makes it easier for them to experience Nintendo IPs. Which is a great point, because kids now, you know, we don't parent anymore, so when a kid turns one and a half, you throw a fucking tablet in front of their face and they're zombies. Uh, Alright, it makes, makes sense to get those kids indoctrinated with Nintendo as early as possible. You know, it's like cigarettes, but it won't kill you. Uh, well, maybe Nintendo games can kill you, can they? No. So, you know, a kid starts playing a Donkey Kong tablet game when they're two. By the time they're six, they move on to the console or 3DS, uh, you know, or whatever handheld they have out there. Or whatever replaces the Switch. You know, I, I don't see a problem with that. Uh, I don't I want to avoid that word synergy, though. We want synergy. Uh, you know. Nintendo ain't going anywhere, people. They're going to be fine. It's time for the scumbag. Gumbag. Seller. Seller. Of. Of. The. Week. Week. And I use delay and, and not just reverb because some people were complaining. You're going to have a bonus scumbag sell over the week. You're going to get two. Because I decided I want to do two. Why not? The first scumbag sell over the week is Auto Supply King 91. Because when you want awful counterfeit retro game supplies, you go to Auto Supply King 91. Top rated plus on YouTube. So what is he selling? Well, Patrick. Well, Patrick. Well, audience. He's selling stuff like the Punisher Sega Genesis video game. Uh, custom art manual instruction booklet only. Well, Pat, it says custom in there. Okay. He's charging $73 for these. For a reproduction counterfeit manual that doesn't say it's counterfeit anywhere on it. Doesn't say it. So the problem is, uh, t- it's two. He's tricking some assholes thinking it's real. Because a real 
Punisher manual would go for seventy three bucks, or not not even that much. It would, would it even go for that much or around that there. And I don't see counter, you know, counter. I don't see repro anywhere on this. And then people are going to buy this and then resell this or complete their uh, Punisher. Uh, say they have the you know the case and they have the game, but no manual, and they'll end up selling it at some point. Even it's for your personal collection. You're going to die at some point, or you're going to face financial hardship and get rid of your, your games, and someone else is going to buy thinking it's real. Same argument for years and years against why this is not a good idea. So let's see what else Auto Supply King 91 has. Contra Hardcore Manual, $47. Mega Man Soccer, uh, $47. Crusader, Crusader of Senti Manual, $73. For a counterfeit manual, Incantation, 46 Splatterhouse 2, 49 A Turtles in Time box, Repro box, for $70. Repro box. Pretty fucking sure I can get the regular box for less than that. If you can find the box only for that, which is going to be tough. I'm looking, though. God, there's a lot of counterfeit shit out there looking right now. Holy shit. How depressing. I just searched for Turtles in Time Super Nintendo, and over half the listings is either a counterfeit, counterfeit, counterfeit box, a reproduction art manual, or a fucking refrigerator. At least that's not a real product. You know, it's still sad, though. But, uh, yeah, it's just, uh, just awful. Musha. Custom manual new. $73. Fuck. Conqueror's Bad, Bad Fur Day. A Mega Man Nintendo manual that's fake. Hagani box. Jesus. I'm running out of steam already. Clay Fighters Sculptor's Cut manual. Custom Mega Man 6 manual. Like, is that really necessary? Is that, is that, is that, is that rare of a game? Christ. Metal Storm. All right. That's a scumbag seller of the week. Auto Supply King 91. You're the first one. The bonus scumbag seller of the week is, well, there's two of them here. Well, there's two ways to get in touch with them. Um, 086, I want your stuff. Okay. They are selling out of Europe. Uh, looks like they are selling out of the UK a 32 gigabyte micro SD card with 75,000 ROMs to buy. Play all the games from your childhood on your Raspberry Pi. There are over 70,000 ROMs in the download. You're going to get a fucking link. A download link. He's selling you, not like the last scumbag seller actually mailed you a USB drive. You're going to be sent a link to download a either a zip file or a torrent of 70,000 ROMs that this person is selling illegally. That's what you're going to get. A Google Drive download link. That's where you'll be getting. For all these systems, Apple II, Neo Geo, fucking fuck. PS1 is a bonus. What else is this fucking idiot providing you service for? Uh, 64 gig. What the fuck is this? 64 gig plug and play for 135 euros. This is a preloaded 64 gigabyte SD card with everything installed. 135 euros 
What? What is that? And, and USD. I know you, you. I know your guys' euro took a slight tumble to the dollar. Wow, it's almost equal now. 143 US dollars. Almost time for a European vacation. It keeps coming down like this. <laughs> wow. All right. All right. But you're also the scumbag seller of the week because the reason I I really took this up also. Yeah, I'm going to be a little petty. For some reason on Twitter, this person on Twitter is at RetroGamerZZZ, and I'm blocked from them. And I found out I was blocked from them because someone said, hey, look at this seller on, on Twitter, what they're advertising, and I was blocked from looking at it. So either I was blocked because they were afraid of being the scumbag seller of the week, or there was some douche that blocked me for some reason because I don't think I blocked them. So it's very rare, but this has happened before where people have blocked me after like coming, they come at me. I don't seek out shit on Twitter usually. I just look at my at my at replies and stuff. So this is a person that either came at me, said something shitty, or didn't like what I had to say, then blocked me because I would never fucking communicate with this person at Retro Gamer ZZZ. So it doesn't make any sense. Or I replied to them for being a douche, and they before I could reply back, they blocked me, or they or they left a douchey comment, and I didn't look, I didn't fucking see it. So. For those reasons, and because I'm I'm not in the, no, I'm not in a bad mood, but whatever, uh, you get a bonus scumbag sell of the week uh, at Retro Gamer ZZZ. Enjoy selling your fucking ROMs on eBay. One Q and A on the CU podcast. This is from at Niemla Karen, who wrote for a certain NES guidebook. Any thoughts on IMDb closing its message boards? on February 20th. Wow. Uh, I used to peruse the IMDb boards just for humor's sake because there's so many trolls uh, there and it's very toxic. And my thought is that it's a business decision, obviously. And IMDb thinks that it's not going to have an effect on the bottom dollar. The same way that uh, Google dropping PewDiePie from his preferred uh, you know, preferred ads isn't going to hurt them. And Disney dropping him isn't going to hurt them. It's all about the bottom dollar and, you know, profit versus loss. And it's not like them people going on message boards make websites more money. Unless that's a reason they go to there primarily. But that's not a reason I go there primarily. That's not a reason the website even exists primarily. It's for tons of information about movies. It's a great website that's existed since what, since what, 94 or so? Any movie, any any director, any actor, all the stuff they've done, and then they run ads for new movies on there. So they look at it as, well, this is a pain in the ass. It's toxic. We don't have the people to moderate the message boards. They're not going to sell police. There's just tons of trolls. So fuck it. And that's, I think, a lot of uh, websites are starting to do that. I think some even uh, some news sites started adding comments, and they got rid of them. Some, I used to see some, uh, some news websites uh, they only have for certain articles now. Then they got rid of them for others. So I think it's just not worth their time. I mean, it's it's nice that people can comment. Like on YouTube, it's great that you guys can comment. But if you guys couldn't comment, you guys would still watch videos. You just would. You would just start your own form somewhere to comment on certain, like like Reddit. Like, if you couldn't comment on any CU podcast uh, videos or any Path to NES videos, you would just start a Reddit and just link to the videos and then just comment underneath it. I mean, there's there's a need, obviously, for to getting your expressions out and, you know, what you want to talk about. Obviously, I'm not denying that. Uh, it'll happen in some form with IMDb as well. Some website will start the IMDb form, 
even though it's even though it's going to be very unwieldy and it, and it is kind of old fashioned the IMDb IMDb uh, message boards and form it's, it's kind of old fashioned message boards in general are kind of old fashioned at this point it's turned it into Twitter and uh, Reddit sort of conversations you know sort of here today gone in an hour sort of thing but uh, it's a sad day but uh, yeah IMDb probably said yeah this isn't making us any money and as Chris Pratt said uh, the comments are bullshit. They're not always bullshit. A lot of them are. I love you guys commenting on YouTube, but some of your comments are bullshit. You gotta admit, they're funny, but some are mean and hurtful. You hurt me, but, you know, overall, if they left tomorrow, um, it, it's not like YouTube would, uh, would go out of business. It, they would still exist. You know, like I said, it, it would just be conversation held elsewhere instead of on YouTube itself. And the same for IMDb. That's it for this CU Podcast. For Valentine's Day, hope you had a lovely one with chocolates and and booze and champagne and sex, hopefully. Uh, The Ultimate NES app is now approaching 1.2 release for iOS and Android. So that's lots of cool new features on it. Um, Easier to use. Uh, Updates, more collection tools. So go to iOS.UltimateNES.com android.ultimatenes.com if you're on your devices and that'll go right to the Google Play Store or iOS Store and you can download it and thank you so much and thanks to Embraceware for keeping up to date the book is back in stock if you want to order it go to ultimatenes.com the new NES Punk video is out if you haven't watched it check it out Uh, if you want to keep up to date on Ian and his health and or donate to his GoFundMe go to thepunkeffect.com slash Ian that'll redirect Uh, we're on Patreon it's patreon.com slash CU podcast. Uh, I am now primarily the person running the podcast Patreon with Ian's blessing. Uh, so he's going to have his own. Um, and then we're going to have the, the combination CU podcast one. I just changed the name. But that's where I'll be uploading the full video episodes and your exclusive segment or early segment uh, as such. And yeah, so we'll see you in a couple of weeks. Uh, I can't say if Ian's going to be back. Oh, I'll be at Retro Spill Messin. I'm proved. I'm going to definitely be in Norway, and that's going to be... Uh, when is Retro Spill Messing? Uh, that is... Uh, what is that? May something? When is it? Come on, you're killing me! May 20th and 21st in Norway, in Sandefjord. Check me out there, folks. I had a great time last year. Norway, the friendliest people on the planet, uh, and much nicer than New Jersey people. And I'll be back there. In May, check them out at retrospillmessin.no. And uh, yeah, we'll see you next time. I'm going to go get something to eat and take a shower. I'm kind of balmy right now if I have to say so for myself. And maybe I'll have some of those Valentine's Day chocolates that don't exist. It's kind of sad. <laughs>